welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash valleyforthchurch. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We enter in and now into the study of God's Word in 1 John chapter 2 in the next portion. That opens up for us is 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14. So with me, will you hear the Word of God? John continues in this epistle. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. This is God's life-searching word. May we hear it and be moved by it. Father, thank you for this mighty man of God, the aged apostle John, who alone, perhaps in his time, could have written what he wrote because he (laughs) was the last survivor who had seen what he'd seen. And now it's here for us. You've placed it here for your churches for all time. Help me to open this word faithfully. Help us to see the imagery of John under the hand of the Spirit and apply it into the work and the experience of our lives. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. You can be seated. Well, most of the time when Christians greet each other, um, we greet each other the same way you greet somebody that you just meet out in the marketplace or wherever, uh, how you doing, right? Pretty basic, pretty West Coast casual, right? But really, if we know that person's a brother or sister in Christ, uh, we ought to build a better habit and maybe on occasion say, how's your Christian life? I mean, you might say that's a little penetrating, but we are supposed to to speak into each other's lives and be related to one another. And so that's something you and a believer only share in common the Christian life and the walk with Christ that you both are hopefully progressing in. So why not ask, how's your Christian life? And I imagine if you started doing that with believers, um, the response you get would probably, in our Western culture, in our Western church, probably would be based or related to how things are going. And uh, if you're not going through any trials you'd probably answer a believer that said, how's your Christian life? You'd say, well, things are going okay. Things are going okay because in our culture, we're still tied to so much of how our external, casual life is going. Our stuff, our our careers, uh, our health, our finances, just the general walk of everyday life. And we, we still have so much freedom and so much prosperity and so much opportunity that that's where our attention lives. And so... Uh, if there are no trials going on in your life, 
If somebody asked you how your Christian life was, you'd say, well, things are going okay. Emphasize on the phrase going okay. But I'm going to submit to you today that as we study John's words, um, that's really not the right answer that God wants you to give. The answer is, is not, oh, things are going okay. The answer God is looking for is not necessarily how things are going. In fact, you're going to find as you walk with the Lord that the Lord is happy to upset how things are going, right? He'll knock those things around pretty easily and freely. He'll bring trials and troubles and changes because he's less interested in how things are going than how are you growing. Did you notice I inserted a, a letter there? How things are going is not as materially important to God in, in terms of your Christian life as opposed to how are you growing? Are you becoming more like his son? And he will mo literally move heaven and earth to ensure that you will be under the pressures you need to be in order to grow to be the person he wants you to be. If you've walked with the Lord for a while, you're beginning to understand this. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, from someone who had walked with God through much trial already at this point in his life, who was sitting in a jail cell for Christ, who was facing a possible death sentence for Christ, whose whole uh, life was a trial, a waiting trial. Things were definitely not going well for Paul. But in Philippians 3.8, he goes back over the entire history of his life, his, his, his upbringing in, in, in Jewish life, his, his economic history, his professional progress, the fact that he was at the pinnacle of all things going well, and then the Lord swept into his life and changed and upset everything. But he looked back on whatever he had lost, verse 7, and he counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, indeed, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So there was something more important to Paul than how things were going, and that was how was he growing in his knowledge of Christ Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And then the next verse was states, and be found in him. And, and part of being found in Christ to Paul was reflecting the character of Jesus in his own life. That was the calling of God on Paul's life. And so Paul was more interested in how he was growing than how things were going. How things were going in his world? Terrible. But he was on the grow. And so Paul could say, spiritually, life is good. That's a stunning contradiction. And we don't see it in our Christian walk today. You see, Paul was on a path. The path in Philippians 3, 8, and 9 was on a path of growing versus th how, how things were going. And trials were required to press him into the character of Jesus Christ. All throughout his writings, you see him urging you to walk in this path, even if suffering is the, the admission price for that. Now, John was on the same path, too, but as I've already told you, when we read his epistles, we're reading from the person who had been the longest in the spiritual life on the human perspective, who was really alive from the group of the apostles. John was writing this in his mid-80s, perhaps 90 years old, having walked with Christ for 60 years and through much suffering. 
But John talks about in these verses a path, a path of becoming more like Christ, a path where trials are a constant, but, but they, they transform us into the image of Jesus. And he wanted these young believers that he was writing to in 1 John to learn about the path, to discern where they were on the path of spiritual maturity, and to press forward into the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He wanted that for them, and now God has placed it in this marvelous epistle so 2,000 years later we can know what God wants for us. He wants us to be on the same path and to discern where we are on it and to press forward to maturity. And so you see their spiritual childhood, their spiritual young adulthood, and their spiritual maturity. And we're going to go through all of these. I'm going to give you the, the, the passage, passage preaches pretty easily because it's broken out into those three identities. They're spiritual children, spiritual young men, and, and by that he means people who are young men and women who are on the path of walking with God and maturing in Christ. And then there are those who are toward the end of that journey and who know God in a deep and abiding way. So there's three different types of people. Those are the three points of the teaching message today. What's it like to be in spiritual childhood? What's it like to be on the pathway of what I would call spiritual adulthood growing through trial and through the knowledge of the word to become more like Jesus? And what's it like to be entering into spiritual maturity to be a father and the faith as he writes someone who knows him who is from the beginning and knows him in a deep and remarkable way what's all of this like and where are you and I on the path it's a simple passage but again like we talked about last week simple language simple concepts deep deep truth so let's take a look at each of these three. First of all, let's take a look about what John teaches about what I would call spiritual childhood. And the principle that I would hook to that in terms of my opening description is it's where every Christian starts. Spiritual childhood. He talks about little children in this text and he does it in a wonderful and revealing way. Now, you could look at this passage, and I want to break a couple of assumptions you might make. Uh, some people look at this and say that all Christians go all through, through all three of these stages, and the, the governing factor is just how long you've known Jesus. They think this is a chronological prediction that all believers start in, in the, the early months and years of their Christian life as little children, just in their early years with Christ, and then they automatically move into uh, the young manhood described here in verse 14, and, and then they finally end up as spiritually mature adults. And it's a given, it's an assumption that that happens. That's not what John is teaching here, and the body of the New Testament doesn't teach that as I'm going to reveal to you. This is not something that happens automatically. And I'm glad because then we'd have a kingdom of, of robots, wouldn't you? No, there is a process here crafted by the Holy Spirit. So it's not chronological, just based, it's not something you age into automatically. But there is a sequence to it. And Bible scholars have looked at this passage and been puzzled by the way John puts this together because he, he kind of does it in what looks to be out of order. In verse 12, he talks about little children, the spiritually young, it's in maturity, in maturity terms, not, not chronological age. Then he, sk he skips in verse 13 to the fathers who obviously look like they're at the end of the process. They're the most mature. And then he finally gets to the young men, which you would think would be in the middle. 
And he does this not once, but twice from, from verse 12 to 14. So the order is odd. And people were wondering, well, John was 85. <laughs> you know, and John, maybe that was John's method of teaching. He certainly, in this epistle, repeats himself often. And he, he just kind of shoots to at you with truth after truth. And then he circles around and repeats it again. Maybe that's just the jumbled John style. I think differently. I think he's actually hidden here for us a sequence. But in order to go from spiritual childhood, verse 12, from being a little child to ultimately becoming a father in verse 13, there's another stage you have to go through, and that's the pathway of being a young man or woman in the faith. And, and he, 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 he kind of talks about the beginning point of verse 12, the ending point in verse 13, and then how you get there is going through spiritual adulthood. Now, hang on to that. You may not see it now, but I think you'll see it as I develop his teaching. So there is a sequence. You go from spiritual childhood. Your goal and hope is to end up as a spiritual father, someone who really deeply knows God, but the only path to get there is through spiritual maturity, and that's how he kind of structures this out. He gives the most detail in verse 14 to what a spiritually mature person is growing to become. I think that kind of gives it away. So as you look at these points on the path, as I said, as I've begun, where, spiritual childhood is where every Christian has to start. So everybody starts there, whether they meet Jesus when they're six or, or when they're 60 years of age. But spiritual maturity, in other words, growing to be a young man or young woman of the faith who knows how to do battle and defeat sin, some move from childhood into that battle and that period of life. But notice I didn't say all. We're going to see in the Bible that some people stay in immaturity. Stump, some people stay in spiritual childhood, either for a portion of their life or, sadly, some for a, a major aspect of their life. And then uh, some others move through the process of spiritual maturity and they move into spiritual adulthood, being a father or a mother of the faith. Some arrive there and they are remarkable people from whom we ought to draw deeply. So that's kind of context for this teaching. It's about the path of spiritual growth. growth. But where, where all Christians start is spiritual childhood. He says little children. uses two different Greek words. He starts his argument and he talks to them uh, as little children. And that's the word technia, which meant a born one. Someone born into a family. So he's obviously talking about starting at spiritual beginning. That's the word he uses in verse 12. He then alters it and uses a, a different word later on in verse 13. It's, it's just children, paideia, and that's somebody who knows that they need to learn or grow. Both of those you're going to find out are true. But he starts with technia because I think part of his point is we're all born into the family of God and we all start at zero spiritually in terms of our knowledge and our maturity. Isn't that true? Like I said, whether you're, you find Jesus at 6 or 60, you start at the beginning. And you start by being born again, technia. You start by being born into the family of God. How do you become a Christian? You're born by the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, you're born again by the Spirit of God. A new nature comes to dwell within you. Spiritual light goes on and you become one of God's children. And the scripture also says you are adopted in the book of Galatians into the family of God. Where does that start? The moment of your conversion. 
It's all started and done there. You become a child of God at that point. You're fully a child of God at that point. You don't have to do anything more to be a child of God at that point. He makes you one of his children. You're born again. Has that happened for you? A lot of people struggle and I meet with them and counsel and talk with them about the fact that their their Christian life hasn't changed and more than once in my life as a counselor and a Bible teacher I've discovered that the reason that person is confused spiritually and in the dark spiritually and in bondage spiritually is because they've never been born again what a joy it's been to go back to the beginning and go back to the basic of the gospel and to say you know you became religious a long time ago but I don't think you've ever met him And when the the full gospel is shown to them and the lights go on, then they know that they know, like I've talked to you about in John's epistle. Then they know him, and the spiritual light comes on. They receive that new nature. They're born again, and then the whole trajectory of their life starts to change. So you have to start here. Have you been born again? If that's true, then John tells you that two wonderful things become true about you. The first is that you have a beautiful sense of, of the forgiveness of your sins. Look at it, verse 12. I'm writing to you, technia, little born ones, barely born into the family of God, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. What do you know when you're barely born again? What do you know when you've come from darkness to light? You just know that, that you were blind and now you see and you know that your sins, as we sang earlier in worship, have been blotted out, taken away. You don't know a lot more, but boy, you know that, don't you? And isn't that a wonderful thing? You have what we call as Bible teachers the assurance of salvation, don't you? Isn't that a great thing to have? To know you're going to go to heaven. The assurance of salvation. Notice he says, your sins, these are all the things that you carried into your first meeting with Jesus Christ. All your guilt, all your deeds, all your issues, all of them, all were taken care of. There's no qualifiers there. He says, he doesn't say most of your sins. He doesn't say the the, the easiest sins. He doesn't say the the sins you remembered to confess when you met Jesus. All your sins, it's a total term. And they are forgiven. Notice he doesn't say they're in a suspense column. Notice he doesn't say you need to work those off. Notice he doesn't say there's any uncertainty. They are forgiven. And notice he says it is for his name's sake. You know the book of Ephesians is so wonderful when it talks about how marvelously we are forgiven. And in Ephesians chapter 1 it says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses. I love going over that with new believers and I say is there any are there any conditions in that statement? Is there any holdback in that statement? Are there any sins that are held back against you by God in that statement? No, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and it's according to the riches of his grace. The marvelous grace of God. And notice, John says, they are forgiven in his name for his name's sake. That's an interesting phrase. We don't use that word phrase a lot for someone's name's sake. What's that mean? It means two things. First of all, it means that you were forgiven because God wanted to bring glory to his great name. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, you won't see this on the screen, but it says in verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons, made us children of God, technia, born ones, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. God's will was to save you. God's will was to work in a mighty way and to take you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Look at this. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. You were saved ultimately to the glory of God. Why did God save you? To bring marvelous praise to His name forever and ever, world without end. You can finish it. A. Thank you. That's why you were saved. Not because of your brilliance, not because of your greatness, not because of any aspect related to you. God saved you because he wanted to bring great and mighty glory to his name. And believe me, that's the thing that we'll praise him for the most throughout eternity. So for his name's sake, he saved you. But it occurred to me as I was studying this that Peter preached to the crowds and he said that at one point, for there is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. You remember that text? So not only does God save you for his name, he saves you by his name. That means that there is no other one who could have wrought salvation for you and brought you into his kingdom but him. And there is no other name that is a saving name than the name of Jesus. There is no other name no other religious name, no other religious leader's name could save you. No other philosopher's name could save you. And believe me, your name couldn't save you. And that's where a lot of people get hung up today. They still believe that they need to come to God based on their own name, what they can do for him, what they have done from him, what they have sacrificed for him, what they've abandoned for him. He doesn't give a rip about your name. His name the name of Jesus is the only saving name. In Isaiah 43, 25, God himself says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And he does that through the name of the only one who ever died for your sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only name by which you must be saved. One commentator I read this week put it this way, quote, because of the unsearchable riches of Christ's atonement, there is no single sin so great, no mass of sins so many that they are beyond the forgiveness of this name. The disease appears fatal. Isn't that true? Sin is a disease. And when you finally see it in your own life, it does appear fatal. That's why you're shouting for a Savior. That's why I was. You are a hopeless case. Yet the great physician, the one bearing the name Jesus, heals on the basis of his shed blood on the cross. And he glorifies himself in the process. That's why there's no other name. No one else died for you. No one else shed his precious blood for you. No one else defeated Satan for you. No one else rose from the dead for you. No other name will save you. No other name. The disease appears fatal. You were a hopeless case. But the great physician heals on the basis of his own shed blood. There is no other name that can rescue you from that crisis. My wife and I know something about what it's like to face a great crisis where a disease appeared fatal, where there appeared to be no hope. 
for the survival of our infant son. Years ago, our infant son born with an undiagnosed structural problem in his heart, not just one, but two. A gigantic hole in the middle of, in the middle of his heart and then a, 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 a problem in the aorta where it was so constricted that it was not carrying the proper flow of blood. He was within hours of death. Suddenly discovered, all of a sudden our world changes and we're standing in the intensive care unit of a hospital in Sacramento, California, having a doctor draw pictures of our son's broken heart. Telling us he probably won't live through the night unless we try one procedure. It's a 50-50 chance. Believers gathered around us. He made it through the night miraculously on that procedure and then was transported three hours away to Stanford Medical Center to one of the nation's leading pediatric cardiology clinics. As we drove there, we didn't know what to expect. We were under shock and we knew his heart had to be fixed, but we wondered if they could do it. Not just one defect, but two. He was in cardiac failure, respiratory failure, they brought him into the NICU, the newborn intensive care unit in the cardiac wing. Initially, we had hopes that, that this would be resolved, but over the hours and then the first day where we were there, we weren't be give, being given much hope by the medical staff. His organ failure was progressing, and the structural, uh, structural defect in his aorta was so significant. We didn't know what to expect, and then we began to notice, and maybe you've been there, I hope you haven't, but if you have been in a NICU as a parent, you notice that the mood changes when hope begins to ebb. The attention paid to your son lessens. The conversations become subdued and distant, and we knew that they were giving up on him. And then... The shift changed, and into the NICU walked a man named Dr. Michael Black. And Dr. Black swept in, and in medical terminology, he caught my son's case. People said it was by chance. We knew it was by divine design. And Dr. Black walked into that room and took a look at the numbers and looked at the scans and the studies. And he looked at us and he said, I've just returned from Japan, where at my own expense, I worked with robotic scientists there to design a special set of instruments that allow me to perform surgeries like this. I want to operate on your son. I believe I can save your son. Let's prep him for surgery. Suddenly the mood in the NICU changed. Suddenly the activity increased Suddenly, the conversation started again. And I remember one nurse looking at me and saying, Dr. Black's got your case. Dr. Black is amazing. There's nobody like him. And indeed, Dr. Black took our son into surgery. I remember him coming out. He knew that we were people of faith. He was a conservative Jew. And he knew that we were people of faith. And he brought my son out in his arms just before the surgery started and they were gonna put him on the bypass machine. And he said, I knew you'd wanna pray over your son. And I remember standing in the hallway of that room, placing my hands on my son 
and asking God to place his hands on this man's hands and him being swept into the OR and spending hours in prayer and waiting and then finally getting the news as, as the surgery ended Dr. Black came out and said I was able to finish the surgery 45 minutes faster and because of that your son has survived he lives and he lives today hi son and you see everything changed because a name changed Everything changed because someone with true power and true ability and true confidence swept into a terminal situation where there was no hope. There's something about a name. Because with the name comes power. With the name comes confidence. With the name comes knowledge. With the name comes hope. And I'm telling you right now, if you face the terminal news of your sin and people are withdrawing from you and there is no hope for you and other solutions haven't worked for you, oh, you haven't met Jesus. He bears a name. And beloved, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've walked with him for a while now, you know how terminal you were and you know how wonderful it is to know that he caught your case. And you now, as John said, have a beautiful sense of the forgiveness of sin. It's a beautiful thing to have, isn't it? Only one name gives it. But not only do you have a beautiful sense of forgiveness, the second thing you have as a, as a child of God is a, a budding relationship with God. Go back to the text, 1 John chapter 2. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Then go to the end of verse 13. I write to you children because you know the Father. What's the other thing that all young Christians have, all baby Christians possess? It's what I would call a budding relationship with God. You know the Father. You don't know a lot of other things, but you know that God has become your father and you know that you can go to him as, as your father. Galatians 4, 6 puts it into beautiful language in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. The Bible says, and because you are sons, talking about having been adopted as sons, verse 5, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, Ava was the word that was the first word that little kids learned. Ava meant daddy. You know this. That's what the heart is filled with when you come to know Jesus Christ. You know that you know someone who is your father, who will care for you, who will take you to heaven, who will provide for your needs, who is all that you need, and you're drawn to him. But you don't know that much more about him, but you do know he's your father. Amen? I found that in young Christians, they have an affection for the Father. They were an enemy of God. Now they're a child of God. And it's a, it's a relationship that's more affectionate and more emotional than based on deep knowledge. But they know who he is. 
And they're drawn to him. My grandson Liam is, is very young and, and he's just in the toddler stage, you know, in, the, in, in, in that little stage of life. His language is just forming. He doesn't have a, a huge understanding of knowledge at all. But he knows who I am. And he's got an inner, inner radar guide as to when I'm around. And when my, my daughter Claire drives him up the driveway and, 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 and the, the slide door opens on the van, as soon as he's, as he's let down from that car seat, I don't have to say a word. I can stand 20 yards away. He'll be looking, the radar's on, and he sees me, and he doesn't say a word. He just raises his arms and comes in my direction, waiting for that sweeping upward embrace. Why? Because he knows who I am. <laughs> He knows that he knows who I am. He has a budding relationship with me that I pray grows ever, ever deeper and more intimate. You see, he's innocent. And that's a blessing and a danger. In Ephesians chapter 4, little children are described. And it says... In verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Children are innocent. Children don't know much. It's a beautiful thing to see, but it's not a good place to stay because it is a vicious spiritual world out there. And if you stay a little child, you can be tossed in f to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, craftiness and deceitful schemes. You're innocent, but you're vulnerable. And this is why the Bible tells us and John advises us, don't stay a spiritual newborn. Don't stay a spiritual child. Go on and become a young man of God. You say, well, again, spiritual children, they're, they're really cute, but don't they all grow? No. This is interesting. There's two types of spiritual infants mentioned in the New Testament. The first is what Philip read to us from 1 Peter chapter 2. He, he said, as newborn infants... Nephios, just born ones is the Greek, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. God's desire is now that you come to know him. You're born again. You're, you're, you're barely walking. Grow up into, into your salvation. And you do it by longing for the pure spiritual milk. Get fed. Get built up. So there are baby Christians by virtue of the chronology of their spiritual life. They're barely born again. They're just new. And they're new Christians. And what they need is the love of God poured out through a church of Christ and through the word of God and, and young Christians need to be in church and they need to grow in church and that's what we're about here and hopefully as they're under the milk of the word they grow into the truth of the word and they become young men as we're going to talk about in a second but there are some there's another kind of spiritual infant who is not just the the newly born again type there are other kinds of spiritual infants who have been around a long time but they are what Paul called people of the flesh in 1 Corinthians 3.1. He 
He says, I could not write to you as as mature people, but to people of the flesh, carnal people. These are Christians who may have been believers for some period of time, but they're stunted in their spiritual growth because they have chosen to live in the flesh. Paul said, to live in carnality. They've chosen to stay immature. They've wanted to live according to their own desires. They've resisted the call of the Spirit of God and the truth of the Word of God at certain points in their life, and they are staying immature, staying childish, staying fleshly. And I've known people that have failed in that battle for for years. They've been around church a long time or they've known Jesus a long time, but their growth has been stunted. One person, uh, illustration I saw this week was said, nurses with babies in in hospitals are beautiful sights, but a nurse rocking a 40-year-old man in her lap with a bottle in his mouth is a pitiful picture. But it's often what is seen in a local church. People that stay carnal and and we're still nursing them on the milk of the word after decades. Don't be that person. You want to move on. And I'm, I'm sure you're saying, wow, okay, pastor, take us to some hope. I'm glad you asked. I'll go to the next stage then. This is where you need to step into from spiritual childhood into spiritual adulthood. And this is where some travel. I could even put the word many travel, but not all. But this is what John says you need to get out, uh, get into from spiritual childhood to spiritual adulthood. Go back to our text and look at verse 14 where he, he kind of describes this. He says, I write to you young men. This is the next stage on the path. Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is what I call the maturing believer. Now, just an aside here, just because he uses masculine language, I don't want you, if you're, a, if you're a woman, to feel that this is excluding you. Please don't feel that way. It was simply the way they used the language at the time. They used masculine words, but he often used that to include the whole body of Christ. So please understand it that way, and don't feel that you're being X'd out. No, we could just as easily say spiritual uh, adulthood, young men or young women. So include yourself in this, and notice... In verse 14, there are three different qualities. The most detail is given to the growing Christian. There are three things. The first is what I would call a level of spiritual strength. Notice he says, I'm writing to you young men because you are are strong. You're strong. You have spiritual strength and power. So he's talking about you've gained some maturity, you've gained some knowledge, and you've gained some ability to do two things. One is resist personal temptation. Don't you have to be strong to say no to sin? Absolutely. Absolutely you do. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, you need to become a person who learns how to make godly decisions to say no to the fleshly temptations that keep some people in the, in the nursery and you need to to battle against sin. So you need to know how to resist personal temptation. Romans chapter 6 should describe you. Let not sin therefore reign 
in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Talking about your physical body there when he says your members. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So Paul is talking there about the fact that maturing young men and young women in the faith, people who are moving through spiritual adulthood, have learned to say yes to God and no to sin. It's that simple. I'm doing this from memory, but I believe that the Greek structures there in Romans 6 is verse 12 says, stop letting sin reign in your body. Verse 13, stop presenting your members to sin. So it's something every Christian has to learn how to do. Our old habits, our old flesh, our old drives, our own desires need to be subdued according to this text. And we need to learn how to build habits of saying yes to God and no to sin. That's the mark of the maturing Christian. If it's not there, you're not a maturing Christian. I don't care how long you've been in church. I don't care how much you enjoy Christian music or you get blessed by worship or you, you enjoy this or that. If you are not learning how to stand in the private battle over personal temptation in your life, you're not hitting the qualifier of 1 John 2.14. You're not strong, but you need to be. So there's two things. You have a level of spiritual strength, number one, in, in, in defeating personal temptation, but the other thing is defeating doctrinal deception. Remember when I took you to Ephesians chapter 4, and I said that little children are vulnerable, verse 14 of chapter 4. You're vulnerable. You can be tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's what happens if you're a spiritual child. Look at verse 15, however, which I didn't read. This is what you do when you're spiritually adult. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ. What's that saying? A lot of people take that text and use it as a, as a text that teaches encouragement or, or, or confronting people or some, in some way. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when false teaching comes your way, when somebody is deceived and wants you to, to go off the path and get into their deception, their false teaching, or their wrong way, you speak the truth in love, verse 15, into their life. You say, wait a minute, what you're saying is not biblical. It doesn't match up with what I know the Bible says. You're, you're getting deceived into false doctrine. I love you enough to tell you, don't do that. Or if somebody comes and tries to sell you on some broken Christian teaching, some aberrant theology, you're supposed to say, no, in love, I'm telling you, you're wrong. That's not what the Bible says. And you're, in, in so doing, you're protecting them, but listen, you're also protecting yourself. You're spiritually strong. You're biblically taught. And this is such a crisis in our time. Never in my career as a pastor have I seen the amount and the spread and the level of false teaching in supposedly confident Christian churches in my entire career. False teaching is moving throughout the evangelical church. Why is false teaching thriving? Because a lot of Christians aren't thriving biblically. We're not teaching doctrine in our churches biblically. We're not stretching Christians' minds to understand who they are in Christ and what Christ has done for them. We're not giving them enough deep truth. And so when some whippo out there comes along with something that sounds unique and sounds exciting and they've gotten some prophetic word or whatever, all kinds of people are following that and they, they tell me all the time, but it's so deep. No, it isn't. It's deceived. Go back to the rock of the word of God, which you've always had, and start learning it. 
If you are a, a, a young man or a young woman in the faith, if you're leaving spiritual childhood and you're moving into spiritual adulthood, the first characteristic of you is you're going to have a level of spiritual strength to resist temptation and to identify deception. Is that where you're at? The second thing, go back to 1 John 2, is that you're also going to have a life in the Word of God. Not only are you strong, verse 14, but the Word of God abides in you. And that's an, a fascinating passage, a fascinating phrase, abides in you. God's truth is precious to you. God's truth is always abiding in your mind. God's truth always has a place in your life. God's truth has a major commitment in your world. God's truth lives in your life. You're like the person in chapter, in, in Psalm 1, verse 2, the Bible says your delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law you meditate day and night. You have a passion for God's truth. You will not grow any other way. Now I'm talking today to a lot of people who believe if they get a little Bible here, a little Bible there, they're good. No, you have to abide in that truth because you're awash in a sea of deception 24-7. You ever notice this? And of course, in the media age we live in now, the levels of that deception are higher and higher. You've got to counter that 24-7 noise with a deeply devoted life in the Word of God. Just doing a podcast from time to time is not enough. We're talking about a life of personal devotion to the Word. That's a whole different message. I'm going to stop there. So there's a level of spiritual strength. You're strong. There's a life in the Word of God. The Word of God abides in you. It's found its place. It's, it's the compass of your thoughts. It's, it's, it's the delivery system of your values. It's the guidance of your decisions. It's the comfort in this crazy, frightening world that we're in. It's all of that and more. Number three, if you're a spiritually mature person, you're going into spiritually, spiritual adulthood, rather. You have, you're building a history of spiritual victory. That's the last phrase. And you have overcome the evil one. Because you're growing, you're abiding in the word of God, because you're learning to say no to temptation and deception, those are the attacks of the devil on your life. And the more you build those abilities, the more you have overcome the evil one and his strategies in your life. The evil one here undoubtedly refers to Satan, but the young men have overcome him. Does that mean perfectly no? But in terms of the pathway of their life, the trajectory of their life, these men and women are no longer yielding authority to the enemy like they were when they were less mature. That's the, the, the import I get from the test. There are some Christians that I know who believe that they, that they always have to give ground to the devil. What a deception. No, you can stand in victory. It's hard-fought victory. It's victory by faith, not with feelings or circumstances. But you learn to stand against the enemy. Now, how do you do that? Well, the best way to defeat him in your, the enemy in your life is to use what Paul said in Ephesians 6, is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is exactly what Jesus did during his 40 days in the wilderness. Why did he do that? Why did he go through temptation as the perfect man? To show you how, as a man or woman, to deal with the onslaughts of Satan. By his authority, could Jesus have banished Satan with a word? Of course. But as the Son of Man, he went through the wilderness experience for many reasons theologically, but he certainly gave us a template about how to use the word of God to defeat Satan. You gotta wield the sword of the spirit. When you do that, you become what I would call battle skilled. 
And in that sense, you have defeated the evil one in terms of his usual pathways of attack in your life. You've got strength. You're becoming famous in hell. What an honor. Some of you, I know you. You've gone through terrible trials and you've learned deep things and you've honored God when others haven't. And I'm telling you, you, you may think nobody knows your name. Well, guess what? Some of the, some of the devils in hell know your name because you've defeated them. Get more famous. Everybody wants to build a brand today, have their platform today. Why don't you desire to be more famous in hell? Here's a life vision. Well, you can be a, a child. That's where everyone starts. You can move into spiritual adulthood where some move and some progress and many of you, that's the path that I hope to be on. I want, I want that to be true of me. And then he finally finishes and we'll wrap it up here with the third description of those on the path and he goes back to First John here in verse 14. He says, I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. So there's spiritual childhood, there's spiritual adulthood, and then there's finally spiritual maturity. This is where some finish. This is where John was finishing. This is where Paul had told Timothy, oh, my race is almost run, but I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. That's where Paul finished. It's where many believers have, but not all. I'll repeat that. It's where many believers have, but not all. He uses the sparsest number of words to talk about this one. Maybe because you no longer need words to really identify them. You've known him, you know him who is from the beginning. I, I find that people who reach this level of spiritual maturity, they can't really be described in detail or analyzed or chaptered and versed. You can only really experience these people. Just being with them, you sense, I'll put it in a new phrase, a quiet, solid strength at rest in him. A quiet, solid strength at rest in him. John uses one phrase to describe it. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. Why did he say from the beginning? It's my, my impression. He's talking about the eternality of God. The fact that God has always been. And if he has always been, his eternality is accompanied by his unchanging nature. Isn't that true? I, the Lord, change not, he said to Malachi. The same yesterday, today, and forever. If you've known him through many battles against temptation, through many battles against deception, and more than anything else, through many battles against suffering and trials in which you were tempted 
not to trust him or not to stand for him, but to collapse in unbelief. The only way you made it through was by deepening who you knew. Isn't that true? You've come to know him who is the eternal God, the unchanging God, the unaffected God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And now you can add your own verse to that statement in Hebrews. Oh, you've seen he's the same yesterday. You've had a lot of yesterdays. You can see that he's the same today in this present battle, and you'll trust him all the way until when you see him through death, and you know he'll be good for you, and he'll be good for for carrying you all the way because he is the great I am. He's the one that you're coming to know is simply enough all through the blessings and the battles. No, you can't be described or analyzed, but you can be known. And people that know you well enough just want to be with you. I know a few like that. And I can't wait to be with them. I make time to simply be with them in their walk. Charles Spurgeon is, in my opinion, the the greatest English preacher the English language has or will ever produce. He was so massively gifted, saved at 16, pastoring and preaching at 18, surrounded by a megachurch before he was 20. But he wrote about an occasion when he was still a young preacher and he was preaching about forgiveness in a sermon. His grandfather happened to be present. And Spurgeon before those thousands at the end of a sermon on forgiveness asked his grandfather to walk up from the crowd and close this particular message in prayer. The aging Spurgeon slowly came forward, walked up that great platform, put his hand on a young Charles's shoulder and said, Charles can tell you about it better than anyone, but I've lived it. Let me, let me pray. And he did. A spiritual father finishing well. So let me ask you again, <laughs> how's your Christian life? Are things going well or are you growing well? Where are you on the path of becoming more like Jesus? And you know, as you answer that, remember that even if right now you're living through multiplied trials, even though right now you're living through what James talked about in James 1, let me close with this, James 1, 2. He said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The Greek is very picturesque. It meant falling into a pit surrounded by trials of many colors technicolor trials more than you've ever faced and you're in a pit surrounded by them oh you can still count it all joy my brothers 
how in the world, if your life is multiplied trials right now, can you still say life is good? God is good. How can you say that? Well, he tells you, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's God's will for your life? I told you at the beginning of the message for you to reflect Jesus. That's his goal. He does it through trials that press you out of your strength and out of your pathways just to him. If you need him that much, He'll be there. And you find out that he's more than sufficient. And you grow to know him more. That's what trials are designed to do. So even in multiplied trials, if your goal is growing to be more like Jesus, you can still say, how's my Christian life? It's painful, but good. Because I, I think I'm growing to be more like him. And I'm finding he's more enough. Where are you on the path? What's he drawing you to? Lean into it. Let him have his way.